Well, we're in uh, part two of this uh, part of the story of the Exodus as uh, Israel are at Mount Sinai and uh, last week we saw how the Israelites had hearts that are just like ours that are perpetual idol factories. They gave themselves over so easily and quickly to worshipping the golden calf. We saw the foolish and the deceptive nature of idolatry, that it causes us to justify ourselves, to deceive ourselves and others and to express a worship that resembles not what the Lord requires but what our own sinful hearts want. We heard these words in 33 verse 3 from God, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Now the Lord answered Moses' prayer of intercession and he didn't destroy them so he'll be going with his people alongside them but not among them. Now verse 4 of our reading of last week's reading said that this was a disastrous word and the people mourned. Why? Because back in verse in chapter 29 God had said I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See how this promise is so crucial to their identity. If they are to be truly God's people, they need to have God dwelling among them. Now as we saw last week, uh, the Lord's not flip-flopping on his promises. He's not saying, well I, I said I would be a walk among you but now I'm not so sure. I think I'm changing my mind. He's highlighting the seriousness of their idolatry and what this sin actually deserves. Should a sinner presume to have the right to be in God's presence when their heart is far from him? Should I expect God to be near to me if my affections are set upon idols? The reality is that my sin separates me from God. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So they removed their ornaments, what they had left, that is, after making the golden calf. It was an act of mourning. It was the equivalent of wearing sackcloth and ashes. And the Lord said to them effectively, well, yes, you should mourn because what you've done is serious. To use an illustration from a family setting, 
the Israelites have been sent to their room to wait and see what their parent is going to do with them. Now our passage this morning continues uh, the account of Moses interceding for them. Now it may have felt a little bit difficult to follow. It's a long passage. Uh, Maybe it felt a little bit ad hoc. What are the rules about the feasts have to do with what's happening? And especially that strange little instruction about not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. There is actually a deliberate structure though of this passage that actually makes sense of what's come before and what follows. In verses 7 to 11 we see, as I said, that the Lord is present but he remains outside the camp, represented by this tent of meeting. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, the people could only watch from their tents as in the distance as the cloud descended upon this tent of meeting. Said that they worshipped from the entrance of their tents. The word worship literally means to bow down, to prostrate yourself. So their actions would have looked very similar to a Muslim in prayer, alternating between standing and bowing down with their foreheads to the ground in hope that this God who has refused to dwell among them might choose to hear their pleas for mercy and come back into the camp. And what a remarkable thing was taking place in that tent of meeting. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. So while inside the tent there was this sweet, unbroken fellowship between Moses and the Lord, the people could only watch from a distance, standing and bowing, wondering what was being said, wondering if maybe this time Moses will emerge from the tent of meeting with a verdict from the Lord of what he is going to do with them. Then in verses 12 to 17, we give an insight into what was being said inside this tent. Moses is continuing to intercede for the people. Now remember in chapter 32 we saw that he, interact, he interceded in order that the wrath of God would be turned aside from the people, even offering to take their place to have his name blotted out of the book so that they could be included. And we saw how this was a, a picture of Jesus' supreme intercessory act of going to the cross where the wrath of God was turned aside from us and placed on him instead. But that's only the first part of his intercession. See, it's not enough to know that God's judgment has been averted from us and that we won't receive the punishment that we deserve. That's what we've been saved from. But we also need to know what we've been saved to. Was there any point in them knowing that the Lord would not destroy them if they also couldn't be assured of his presence with them? So this is the theme of Moses' intercession here in the tent of meeting, pleading with the Lord on the basis of his character and his 
promises and his reputation that his presence may go with them as he leads his people. And one of the key issues here is his reputation. Remember he said that he was judging Egypt and delivering his people so that all may know that he is the Lord. And you may remember that little line last week when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. This derision was directed towards the Lord, not the people because their idolatry had made him out to be a fraud. What kind of God is he? if he can't even dwell among and be worshipped by the people that he's just delivered in such mighty acts of power. So Moses, the first part of Moses' intercession was a picture of the cross. Then this second part of his intercession is a picture of Jesus' ongoing priestly ministry as he stands before the throne of the Father interceding for us, securing our place, guaranteeing that the work that he did on the cross not only takes away the judgment but opens up the way for us to come to the Father as his justified, holy, loved children. Now the parallel between Moses and Jesus continues in Moses' request In verse 18, please show me your glory. This is a bold and audacious request. It's much more than just asking the Lord to uh, give him a vision or to hear him speak. It's asking for more than the experience he had of the Lord in the burning bush or even up on the mountain so far. The glory of the Lord isn't just a mere representation of God or just an aspect of his nature. Glory means heaviness or weightiness and in that sense it means the sum total of all that he is. A person's glory is the outshining of their essential nature. It's a full revealing right down to the heart of who and what they are. So Moses is asking for a full, unhindered, unveiled insight into the very heart of God. Now if someone has a revelation of the glory of God, they're never the same again. God's glory transforms a person who sees it because they receive something of the glory through seeing it. That's what it means for human beings to be made in the image of God. We're designed to reflect, to display something of God's own nature. Just as the moon doesn't produce light on its own, but it's a reflection of the sun's light. Moonlight is actually reflected sunlight. It has a glory, but it's a glory that's been given to it by the sun. So it is with us. 
coming into God's presence causes us to reflect and display his glory. That's what's going on with the end of the passage with Moses' shining face. He went into the presence of the Lord and bathed in his glory and the the glory, in a manner of speaking, rubbed off on him. The people knew because Moses' face was shining that he'd actually been face to face with God and something of God's glory was being reflected by Moses then to them. See how this idea is clearly stated in 2 Corinthians 2. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to take what the Father and the Son have accomplished and make it known to us. It's what theologians call glorification. Our glorification has started now, but it will be complete when we see Jesus face to face. After speaking to the Israelites, we're told that Moses then put a veil over his face. Now that wasn't to hide the glory, but to hide the fact that the glory was fading Uh, Paul goes on to talk about that in 2 Corinthians 3. The ministry of Moses was glorious, but like the fading glory on his face, it was only designed to be temporary until the one whom he foreshadowed actually came and revealed the fullness of God's glory in the face of Jesus. Now Jesus, the new and better Moses, He also had a conversation with the Father about glory in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. This is in essence Jesus saying, Father, show me your glory. But he doesn't want to merely see the Father's glory. He wants to both glorify the Father by his obedience on earth and to receive glory from the Father, a glory that he has every right to claim because he's the eternal Son, but he chooses instead to receive that glory on the basis of his humble obedient, self-giving at the cross. See what he prays shortly after this. I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also those who will believe in me through their word, us, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us too to see the glory of the Father by seeing his own glory. And the result of this, verse 22, is that we will receive glory from Jesus just as he received glory from the Father. Because Jesus, the Son of Man, has shared in the Father's glory on our behalf, we too can share in that glory as we're made one with him. So that's behind what Moses is asking of the Lord in 13. That's not the verse I'm looking for. Verse 13 of chapter 33, he says, I have found favour, if I have found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. For Moses cannot fulfil the calling he's being given unless he knows the Lord, unless he knows the Lord's favour is upon him through seeing his glory. And Israel won't be able to fulfil their calling as God's priestly people unless they too have some revelation of the Lord's glory through Moses. Now the Lord has every right to refuse this audacious request except that this has been his plan all along. He's been pushing Moses to this point where Moses realises this is what is needed. He needs to see into God's own heart to have some idea of how it can be that God can be rightfully angry at human sin and idolatry and at the same time full of mercy and forgiveness towards sinners. The God who says in one breath, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them that I may consume them and who required death by the sword of all the Levites who were part of the idolatrous worship. But then in the next breath say, That's not the verse either, sorry. Um, Next breath, he says, I will make all my goodness, uh, sorry, the very thing you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. God expresses his anger, burning anger at sin, but yet his favour and his, how can the two go together? We can only understand that when we have insight into the very heart of God. Hopefully all the future references are right. Immediately the Lord 
responds with a yes. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim you before my name, before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on those to whom I show mercy. Now, the name is incredibly significant. In a way, it's kind of the same as saying, my glory. A name sums up all that a person is. Parents would give their children meaningful names that express their hopes for the child's future. And as we see a number of times uh, in the Bible, God changes the names of people to reflect the identity and the destiny that he's given to them. But the name of God was even more significant. In Egypt and in other parts of the world at that time, the various gods had their public name that was used by the people in worship but they also had a secret name, a private name, that they would not reveal to anyone because the belief was if you knew a god's secret name, you could use it to gain power over them. You could manipulate them, you could even destroy them. So knowing a god's real name actually made you more powerful than that god. But the Lord is not like the so-called gods of Egypt or the gods of ancient myth and legend. He's the true and living God. He reigns over all and he's, there's none who are more powerful than him. He doesn't need to fear people knowing his name because his name isn't a tool to exert power over him. It's the way in which a person can come into a relationship with him. So he doesn't have a public name and a secret name. He has one name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. And he's willing to have this name broadcast across the earth to every nation and every people. Remember he wanted Pharaoh and the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Because Knowing his name didn't give them power over him, it displays his power over them. And so now he makes his name known to Moses and through Moses to the people so that they may know him, not to control him, but to be his people. We saw that in Jesus' prayer, didn't we, in John 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus has opened up the name of the Father to us. He's revealed the Father's glory to us, so that we can now come to him and address him, Abba, Father. The church now exists to proclaim the name of Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves. To proclaim the name to the ends of the earth, we confess Jesus 
is Lord. And we declare there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. That's the phrase the Romans would use in reference to Caesar. There's no other name under heaven but Caesar by which you can be saved. The Christians said no, not Caesar. Jesus is the highest authority. We now go and we make disciples of all nations, baptising them into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So see how when the Lord proclaims his name, he truly opens up his heart and his whole being to Moses. He states his name, not once, but twice. The double use of a name in the Bible consistently indicates an extra level of closeness and intimacy. When the Lord first called Moses through the burning bush, He said, Moses, Moses, indicating that he knew Moses intimately. Now, this double use of his name shows he's inviting Moses to know him intimately. Then, the meaning of the name is fleshed out. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God shows himself to be the God in whom all of these attributes of mercy and grace and patience, steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiveness and justice are all together in perfect harmony. In him, mercy and justice aren't pitted against one another, as we might sometimes imply when we say, uh, yes, God is merciful, but he's also just. As if he sometimes has mercy and then he turns off his mercy to turn on his justice and then then he'll turn off his justice and start up his mercy again. God is not merciful but also just. God is merciful and he is just. These two act together in perfect harmony. So he can say both keeping steadfast love for thousands and by no means clear the guilty without contradiction. We see this perfect harmony of mercy and justice most clearly in the cross. There the full wrath, the full justice of God was poured out upon human sin as Jesus hung there in our place as our representative, bearing in himself the wrath of God as a man and at the same time Because the wrath was diverted from us, we've become recipients of mercy. He's had mercy on us not despite justice, but because of justice. And so Romans 3.26 says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's at the cross that we see the name of the Lord proclaimed, his character revealed in full. Moses only saw the back of the Lord and what he saw caused him to fall down and worship. How much more now that the the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus has been shone into our hearts, should we bow down and worship him with our whole lives? Now, some last brief comments about those verses about the idols and the feasts and the young goat. The instructions in verses 11 to 26 are in the context of Moses receiving a new copy of the Ten Commandments and along with those Ten Commandments came all the other 603 statutes that make up the full body of the law. We find those throughout the first five books of the Bible. But the Lord emphasises two aspects of that fullness of the law here because they correspond to the two things that Israel did with the golden calf. Firstly, they worshipped an idol. So verses 11 to 17 warns them that when they enter the promised land they'll be surrounded by all the idols of Canaan and they had to have nothing to do with them. They are in fact to destroy these idols as part of their conquest of the land. Secondly, they held an unauthorised feast. Remember Aaron said, tomorrow we'll hold a feast to the Lord. Although it was really to the calf. But the Lord will prescribe what feasts they are to observe and how they are to observe them in a way that the Lord will authorise. Especially important are these three feasts of pilgrimage that require a representative from every family to come together so they could celebrate as a unified people. These feasts that we know as Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles They come up a number of times through the Gospels and Jesus draws huge significance from them in terms of his own ministry. So verses 18 to 25 expresses the importance of these. And then in verse 26 we come to this strange little command that seems so out of place. Is it a rule about food? Is it a rule about worship or agriculture? And what's it got to do with this context of Israel's idolatry? Now, biblical scholars have many theories, but all of them agree that even if we're not 100% sure of its meaning, we know that the Israelites understood its meaning. But there is what I believe out of all of the theories one that I think is the most likely explanation because it actually makes sense of the whole context of this story. It's not a rule about food or cooking or agriculture but it's a saying, a a kind of a, a parable 
Something like when Jesus talked about putting new wine into old wineskins or putting a new patch onto an old garment or throwing pearls before swine or holy things to dogs. It's a saying about the, the foolishness of trying to bring together two things that are incompatible and specifically about trying to mix something that's new with something that's old. This phrase appears two other times in the Bible and in every case it's always mentioned in reference to the first fruits. The farmer would bring an offering of the, the best of the first fruits of the harvest. And so he might be tempted as he's gathering his grain to bring to the tabernacle to fill the basket two-thirds with last year's grain that was you know, a bit old and a bit stale and then to cover it at the, on the top with the new grain so he could keep more of the new grain for himself. He'd be mixing the new with the old and the old would contaminate the new. So boiling a kid, a young goat in its mother's milk, is doing the same. The new generation, the young goat, with the milk that represents the old generation. It's a saying that essentially means leave behind the old and welcome and embrace the new. Egypt, slavery, all of its gods and idols, that's the old from which the Lord has delivered his people. They're to leave the old in the past and to step into the new thing that he's doing, a new way, a new focus of worship, a whole new way of living as his free people. They shouldn't think that it's possible somehow to have the best of both worlds, a bit of the old from Egypt and a bit of the new because the old from which they came has nothing that's best about it. It's only death and destruction. Whereas the new into which they're coming, all of it is the best because it's life and hope and a relationship with their God. So much and more is true for us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To look back and to reminisce on the past, our life before knowing Christ, it's not only idolatrous but it's foolishness because our past life of sin and death has been done away with and we're now living in the new, the new life. We'd be pining for something that no longer exists. We must, as the Israelites are called to do, to look to Christ and the new thing that he's done, the glorious future that he has in store for us. Will you trust him?